once we tune in to our own native design process and get good at it and make it explicit and ex effective and efficient and shareable, then we can be transformative at multiple levels that every action can have many, many consequences. Greetings and welcome to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast, episode number six. I'm your host, Dan Palmer, and in this episode I share an absolute ripper of a chat with friend and senior colleague Dave Jackie. For the last 38 years, Dave has been developing what he calls a conscious ecological design process, which along with his two-volume book, Edible Forest Gardens, written with Eric Tonsmeyer, has made a huge beneficial contribution to permaculture. I want to share up front that the places we go in this conversation resonate so deeply with the energy of making permaculture stronger, with the questions, concerns and directions that led me to start Making Permaculture Stronger as a project. So it's a real thrill to release what will be the first of at least several conversations with Dave, both of us feeling afterward that we're a ways off having explored all that we want to explore. I want to say also that it's a high-energy conversation, meaning I'd recommend not having the volume up too loud if you're feeling at all under the weather, and also to keep in mind that the odd swear word does crop up, meaning this episode might not be uh, so appropriate for younger listeners. Anyways, enjoy, and I'll check in with you again at the end. So here I am, delighted to be in a conversation with Dave Jackie. Thanks for joining me, Dave. Hey, you're welcome. It's great to be with you, Dan. Yeah, I, I'm hoping today we can really get through the pleasantries, or maybe we just completely skip the pleasantries, and, and you know, dig deep into permaculture. It'd be great to touch on your perspective or relationship to some of the stuff that's been happening with making permaculture stronger, not to mention the fact that so much of your work long before anything I've been doing was on the scene has been, in my view, contributing a hell of a lot to making of a stronger permaculture. But yeah, good to get into design process and just sort of what's going on for you with with the whole scene and situation. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, you know, uh, let me just say that I think they're all pleasantries. Uh, <laughs> whenever I hang out with you, I find it all very pleasant. So, <laughs> uh, and uh, your, your opening question was so broad, I could go anywhere with that. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things you said you wanted to talk about was how I got into all this and where I stand relative to permaculture now. And I think maybe that's a good place to start because mm -hmm. the way that I frame my connection or connections to permaculture is different than pretty much anyone seems to understand. Well, let's get that cleared uh, up. Yeah, well, yeah, good luck. Um, <laughs> you know, as everything, it's ever changing. But I mean, I, I started college when I was 16 at a school that was made for that uh, called Simon's Rock. And my first semester when I was 16, I took a course in ecology with a PhD ecologist, a wasp ecologist, a tropical wasp ecologist named Marty Nauman, who was a student of the Odoms. Huh? My textbook was Fundamentals of Ecology by, by Odom. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't realize it until many, many, many years later how different that approach to ecology was from what most people get when they study ecology because they're studying reductionist ecology and I started out studying systems ecology mm -hmm. and that was 1976. So during that 76, 77 school year, as I was studying ecology and understanding how ecological systems worked from that perspective, I kept thinking to myself, why are we not applying this knowledge to the way humans live? And so I decided during that first year of college 
that I wanted to be doing applied ecology in some way. And I was trying to find a way to do that in the current mm -hmm. culture. And that the only thing I could find was land use planning mm -hmm. as a field that I could study and engage with. And so in 1976, I began my senior thesis, which was a master plan or a land use plan for the 200 acre Simon's Rock campus in, okay. in Western Massachusetts. So I spent basically my whole four years working on that senior thesis. Okay. And I started reading Ian McHarg, Design mm -hmm. with Nature, you know, mm -hmm. became one of my core textbooks to help me learn how to do land use planning. Uh, and there wasn't a hell of a lot else out there at that time in the mid 70s. And then in summer 79, I did a, a semester, a summer semester at the Institute for Social Ecology, then at Goddard College in Plainfield, mm -hmm. Vermont, biological agriculture course, this guy, Charles Woodard, who was a brilliant farmer and a brilliant educator. And during that course, early on in that course, he waved Permaculture One in front of us. This is okay. 1979. So Permaculture One had been out for less than a year. Mm -hmm. And he's like, this book is really critical. You should ride away to Australia for this book. Mm -hmm. And I did. Mm -hmm. So I received Permaculture One in the mail that fall when I was doing my last year of my senior thesis. Mm -hmm. And it took me many steps ahead of where I'd been able to get in my own thinking, but I was already on this track. So permaculture yes. Yes. added to what I was already doing, the mental modeling and the conceptualizing that I was doing for myself came yep. before I heard permaculture. So permaculture mm -hmm. was an addition to my own stream of thought that I've already been working on for many years. In fact, you know, I look back, I've been working on that, on this, these kinds of issues before I even went to college. Spending a lot of time in the woods and wondering why the hell we were destroying everything and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, and getting to that so early on, that realization that what you want to be doing was applied ecology, which is pretty close to the original insight of, of Mollison and Holmgren that was happening and that they came to independently. Right. So that, that's exciting, yeah. So that you, I, you know, I, actually, I actually am not sure that we came to it independently because we were all part of the same ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff. So... We, so Mollison and Holmgren and I and many other people were all responding to what was going on. Mm, yeah. You know, yeah. they're all Gaia responding to itself. Yeah. Really. Water molecules in the same stream, stream or same, river. Same, yeah. same scoop or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, for, you know, my relation with permaculture is to some degree arm's length because, mm. well, for a lot of reasons, but like I said, permaculture added to my own direction, my own worldview, and it was very critical, certainly, certainly a huge catalyst for me at 19 years old to read Permaculture One and 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 realize, you know, the, the scale of permanence that they talked about from Keyline in Permaculture One, which Mollison never wrote about or really talked about ever again. Even when I took my permaculture course with him in 1981, he never mentioned the scale of permanence. Okay. Mm. All right. And it's something that I used starting that year. I mean, I, I made use of that. It helped yeah. me understand what I was doing is in my land use planning for the Simon's Rock campus. Right. Mm. And the publication of Edible Forest Gardens helped bring the scale of permanence back to permaculture when it had been gone for so long, yeah. you know, yeah. for decades. And mm -hmm. I think it's a really valuable tool. It's a very, very valuable mental model that can help us to be comprehensive in our analysis, site analysis and assessment and in our design and rational, you know, about what we're doing. So, uh, yeah, I and mean, that came from Yeomans, you know, through, through Miles and Holmgren and Permaculture One. So, you know, 
in all the different permutations, I mean, I, I took my permaculture course, the second PDC that Mollison taught in the U.S. in March of 1981 at the Rural Education Center. And when I, when I was an intern there and decided that I wanted to do design, but Mollison didn't teach design. We had a three-week course, 10 hours a day, six days a week, and we had four hours of quote-unquote design in that course at the very, right. like, the, the, the last full day of the course, and it mm -hmm. consisted of four hours. The first hour, which was where we took 10 of us, we had three groups of 10 people that went out to different parts of the site at the Rural Education Center at Stonyfield Farm, mm -hmm. and we sat around for an hour and just kind of had a jam session or brainstorm about what we do in that space based on everything Mollison had lectured at us for three weeks. Mm -hmm. And then the, the next three hours, the design project were each team reporting what we had said for an hour. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was, yeah. That was our design project. So I left that course like going, I don't know how to design. And Mollison says, oh, now you have a PDC under your belt. So you can go out and use the word permaculture in a, in a, as a design consultant. I'm like, going, yep, what? Yep. That's ridiculous. That's bullshit. I'm that's, sorry. It's, that's fascinating. I might just, just jump in there because, yeah, I've been doing some work with David Holmgren around the design conversation, opening up the black box of design and permaculture. And one thing that I was fascinated to hear him sharing was that to him, <laughs> Mollison wasn't a designer and certainly didn't teach David Holmgren design. You know, they were no. in their intense collaboration. Yeah. He, he learned his initial design mentor was Haikai Tana, who, who was his second uh, great mentor. And so for, for, for Holmgren, Mollison was primarily an ecologist and, yeah. and obviously blew his mind and, and he got a huge amount of value from, from Mollison as an ecologist. And you know, which corresponds to what you're saying that frankly, design process was effectively absent as, as it is in the designer's manual where we have a whole bunch yeah. of design methods, bits and pieces that Mollison says, you go away and figure out how to assemble but nothing you could really call a design process, which no, you know, a lot of people kind of get out into the field and kind of hit a brick wall when they realize, hey, I've got to figure this stuff out for myself. Yeah. Well, and, you know, luckily, we human beings, in my, in my worldview, my belief is that the design process or a design process is an inherent aspect and a fundamentally determining, defining aspect of what it means to be human beings. So we all have that living inside of us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to do what we do as human beings. So that's, Mollison was leaning very heavily on that and not helping people learn how to make their internal native design process more explicit, effective, efficient, shareable, you know, communicable, clear, coherent, all these things. So that kind of leads to some other parts of the conversation. But for me, that's fundamentally a very essential aspect of what it is to be a human being. It's the design intelligence is inherent in all human beings, unless you're like severely damaged somehow. And so do you think Mollison was kind of aware of that? So he, he thought, well, you can, people can figure it out because it's already in them. Is that what you... I don't know. I, don't, I, could, I can't speak for that. Speak yeah, for that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think he was conscious of that myself. Mm. I think he was his, in his rebellious... This is totally my interpretation of what I saw for three weeks and other interactions I had with him over the years and various points. But he's like an angry, rebellious, anti-establishment. You know, the guy was, all right, if, assuming he was an ecologist, which when I think of eco the word ecologist, I think of, you know, the scientific ecologist. And he certainly worked for CSIRO and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and stuff. So he must have had training and he's working in the museum and stuff in the university. So... He, he must have had the training and, you know, doing the references and the citations and all that, all that mm -hmm. stuff. But 
Mm. He certainly was not interested in acting that way in his own reading and or his own writing and his own teaching. He wasn't giving credit to anyone that he gave it, got it, his ideas from particularly. Yeah. And, you know, the designer's manual sucks because you can't go and figure out, well, was this Mollison's idea or was this coming from someone else? And, you know, where's the background on this and, and get the information because, you know, Mollison was playing fast and loose with a lot of, a lot of information. So that and his own behavior and the, the political BS that surrounded him and the way he, you know, there's various disputes that happened in the late nineties in California where a course that he was teaching with various people, there was a huge split and half the course went one way and half the course. It was like a huge, ridiculous ruckus. And I, I stopped using the word permaculture after a while, you know, beside between that and interactions with people that I was associated with in, in uh, the U S and teachers having sex with students. And I didn't want my, my reputation to be sullied by that kind of behavior. So I stopped using the word permaculture for a while. And I would have, I would have not, started using the word permaculture again rel- relative to myself if my publisher hadn't put the word in the subtitle of edible forest gardens against my will. <laughs> yeah, well. I'm, I'm serious with that. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, they, they, they wanted the word permaculture in the subtitle of edible forest gardens, and I fought them on it tooth and nail, but I lost because yep, yep. authors don't have the right to control the title. Right. Or the yeah. Or the yeah. Well, I was, I was, I was laughing because I think the fact is permaculture has, is a fast growing global movement. It basically, it, for your publishers, it was a good marketing decision. And I, 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 um, actually, I, I actually think they don't think it was now, but okay. uh, <laughs> I, I didn't think it was a good decision, but right, anyway, right. Yeah, no, so, so a couple of things there. One was that, you know, one of the reasons you uh, felt like part and company with, with permaculture was to do with the way that certain folk were acting in the movement, which is interesting because Darren Doherty said something similar the other day when we were chatting, which is, you know, one kind of thing. But this, this other thing, which is which is fascinating to try and unpack, is that Mollison talked a lot about design, about functional design, put a lot of emphasis around and got people, including myself, excited about this idea of we can design the way we lay spaces out, we lay properties out. He put a lot of emphasis on the kind of relative location idea, that the way we assemble or configure the elements of an Because on the one hand, it doesn't feel right to say, well, he completely missed the design boat, given how much he talked about design and how much he inspired people in the design space. And yet there's something funny going on in the sense that, as you say, that, and I think is becoming more realized that permaculture has got this kind of embarrassing issue to deal with, which is that, oh, we're supposedly a design science you know design is supposedly the core of permaculture and we don't really have a you know we don't really have a lot to say about what a sound design process is which of course you realized early on and more than anyone i'm aware of in the entire movement what excited me so much about what you achieved was you filled that gap you said hey here's something and it'd be great maybe to talk later about how I get a bit disappointed when I see people saying, because, you know, you've had this hugely beneficial perturbation. You've made a serious, and I think a positive dent in permaculture, but I get concerned when people say, oh yeah, Dave Jackie sorted that out. You know, he, it's done. It's finished. You know, we've, we've got a design process now because he identified the gap and he filled it. So we can go back to sleep. Um, and I'm going to say, no, 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 no. You know, quite the opposite. Yeah, you know, he got the ball rolling. Let's keep the ball rolling. You know, there's work to be done. I heard you say on a podcast somewhere once, we're taking baby steps here. Permaculture is young. There's so much work to be done. And, and if this is the core of it, this is where the work should be happening. Anyway, I'll shut up and let you speak to that. Let me just say, uh, you know, I, word design, I mean, it's called, like you said, it's called permaculture design. Mm. Design is the verb of is the verb of permaculture. It is the verb of permaculture. 
is at least half, if not more, of the equation of mm -hmm. permaculture. Mm -hmm. Because it's the action of permaculture. It is the fundamental action of what permaculture is, is design. Mm. WTF, man. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean... <sighs> so you, you obviously had this... I mean, I, I've, been doing, I've been doing this for... I mean, I, I read Permaculture One in 1979 and began identifying with the word permaculture in 1979. Mm -hmm. The fall of 79 is now, what's that? Make it. 38 years. Yep. Wow. Right? Because here it is the fall of 2017. Mm -hmm. And so I've been paying attention to the permaculture movement for all this time. And for a long time, I was the only active permaculture teacher who had any design training at all that I knew of in the world. Wow. Wow. That was, but that was only after I didn't have the training until I went to the Conway School of Landscape Design in Conway, Mass., which is a one-year, 10-month program at that time run by a core faculty, two, two full-time faculty members, Walt Kudnowski and Don Walker. And, you know, the school is in some ways the same, but rather different now. And it doesn't seem to me that people who go through that program are learning what I learned when I was there, which was design process. And mm -hmm. I, I've been trying to unpack for years. It's now been 30, 33 years since I finished that program. Mm -hmm. And I'm still trying to figure out how Walt, Walt Kudnowski and Don Walker taught me the, the internal thinking processes that I learned there. Because they did it in a, I don't know, I'm not quite sure. You know, it's certainly experiential. We did a lot of design projects and design charrettes and sketch mm -hmm. problems. And we mm -hmm. just did a shitload of design and presentation and got critiqued. And for 10 months, it was heavy duty, you know. But there's also a way that Walt, in particular, thought. Mm -hmm. um, and the way he interacted with us and the, the experiences that he gave us. Mm. Combined with my own innate abilities and my own innate awareness of my internal environment while I was doing that and reading Christopher Alexander and oh, the, the, book, yeah. the book that really got me uh -huh. timeless way of building certainly in pattern language certainly but the book that really got me going mm -hmm. at that time was um, notes on the synthesis of form mm, 1964 yeah and, and again I can't tell you what it was in that book but that book helped me understand goals articulation better than any reference, anything anywhere that I've seen anywhere since. Mm -hmm. And it, he, he, that book helped me understand that, that the form of the design was at least partially inherent in the goals of the person involved mm -hmm. in that you're designing for, or that was doing the design or both mm -hmm. depending on what the relationship was there. And that, the, the, the core activity of goals articulation and I in for edible forest gardens called it goals articulation because I, I realized long time ago before I wrote edible forest gardens I, I realized that when I set goals mm -hmm. I was splitting myself at about chin level mm -hmm. and my head was imposing goals on my body mm -hmm. whereas goals articulation is the is a very opposite process it's, it's, it's trying to let my brain listen to my body my heart my gut and use the body as a tool to detect the truth of what I truly wanted or my clients truly wanted. Mm -hmm. And 
that articulation of that truth, it be, became the process of goals articulation. And there's a whole set of processes that I'm still trying to sort out and articulate about that, about how that process works internally that I'm still mm-hmm. in my teaching as an, as an educator, still trying to figure out how to train other people to do. It's wow. the hardest it's the hardest part of the goal of the design process to teach. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, I just, one thing I wanted to say is I love that you set such high standards for yourself because you're talking about how you still feel like you're aspiring towards what the, uh, was it Walton Don? At Walt, the, Walton Don taught me. Yeah. 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 But yesterday I was installing a chicken house, a chicken system in, in Melbourne and working for the first time with a younger, a younger guy who'd done your nine day, edible forest garden intensive course i don't know 10 months previously brendan his name was and oh, i said I, yeah 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 I, okay. I, yeah I mean and i mentioned to him, i said oh tomorrow i'm chatting with dave jackie we're recording this podcast and he said you know my advice to you would be just soak it up just soak up as much as you can because there is something about the way that guy delivers a course the way there's something going on with the way he sequences the, the way that he he cultivates the entire experience is just you know he was basically talking to me he was talking about you in the way I just heard you talking about the, so, you know, it's, it's certainly not like you're um, not in the game. And, and, and one, one image that comes to me when I think about your visits to Australia, cause you've been bought, you've come down to Australia a few times and done a, a few courses in it. And when I once did a course with a soil microbiologist, Elaine Ingham, she talked about this experiment where there's a Petri dish full of E. coli and they'd yeah. put a, a live earthworm in the dish and the earthworm would wriggle through it and it would leave this kind of wake of complex yeah. uh, bunch of beneficial bacteria or whatever, you know, different critters. And, the, and then, then afterwards, as they watched, that wake would spread sideways through the E. coli and, and kill it and transform it. And, huh. and, I, and I kind of, I, I see you having something like that effect in Australia. It's quite, it's quite amazing, you know, cause you came through and you, you work with a lot of key. I all over the place. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You exuded a lot of good stuff, a lot of lot of beneficial exudates, and and you you work with with with. That's with, a much nicer uh, way of putting it than I. A euphemism, yeah. But you know, with with Nick and Kirsten from Milkwood, with Hannah Maloney from Good Life Permaculture, a whole bunch of permaculture design course providers, and they straight away realised, oh yeah, there was something missing here, and here's something that we can really take on board, and they they really took it on board the ecological design process you've articulated. And suddenly it's, you know, I've seen it move almost through by osmosis or capillary action or something through the Australian permaculture yeah. landscape. And, yeah, and, then, cool. and then even within that, there's certain things like your idea of goals articulation. I hear that left, right and center these days. You know, almost everyone oh, yeah. that's talking about design process and permaculture is talking about goals articulation, which you came up with. And I love, I love that word articulation. I mean, there, yeah. there, was another, there was another meaning behind it alongside that critical one of about engaging the truth of the whole body mind. But that you've you put me onto, which was the the sense in which to articulate is something is to is to nuance it, you know, to to flesh it yeah. out, to go deeper and find out what its inner structure is. And then oh my, and then you mentioned Christopher Alexander, which oh, I, I, I always gets me excited. And and the, the fact that it, that his first book, you know, it's notes on the synthesis of form, which pretty much no one's ever heard of, yeah. um, sparked profound insight in you and and led you to your understanding of goals articulation yeah and in that book how he talks about the idea of going deeply into the the context of a situation a huge part of which is with what's going on for the people of course you do the same thing with the landscape but that deep that deep immersion in the context that's where the form you know the right solutions lie and your job is to tease them out of that but 
I, I definitely want to bring up this issue, so I'm just going to do it now. And then um, <laughs> it, it seems like this podcast is going to be a series of I rave at you for a while, you rave at me for a while. But, but, <laughs> but this is this huge enigma in permaculture. You were hugely influenced by Christopher Alexander. I was speaking to um, Ben Falk the other day, same thing. Bill Mollison, Christopher Alexander was was a rare example of someone he cited as uh, inspiration yeah. in the in the field of design. David Holmgren, yeah. huge, you know, hugely respectful. You name it. Peter Bain's whole book is organised around it. Toby Hemingway was huge. You know, all, all these authors um, know of and mention Christopher Alexander. He's inside the permaculture psyche, the permaculture landscape, and usually it's the patterns and the pattern language that people are excited about. But when you go and look at what he was actually on about it was the same sort of stuff that you're into it was like what is a healthy process that can reliably yes. generate healthy outcomes that that effectively realize permaculture's aspiration of nature mimicking systems and christopher alexander himself was hugely disappointed with the effect his work on pattern languages has had in the world because he saw people taking pattern languages and patterns and just treating them as more elements to assemble and, and effectively a mechanistic just a continuation of a dominant cultural way of, of yeah. approaching design and and he he didn't see that generating the results he knew knew were possible and so he spent right. the rest of his career writing the 2000 page um <laughs> 30 years uh, yeah. nature of order series which went deep into this territory and yet permaculture just seems to be out to lunch in terms of you know we say we love christopher alexander's ideas but we're completely oblivious to what they actually were and what the essence of them was and we've we've just got this sort of distorted understanding of one part of his work and anyway i just wanted to put that on the table (laughs) but i haven't haven't even attempted to read the nature of order um but in terms of the his books Mm -hmm. his poem the nature of order but i would say that notes on the synthesis of form and the design process that i began learning or that i that or that the design process that was awakened in me at the Conway School mm-hmm. has made me a student of the nature of order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. By own way, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and that, you know, the, the contrast that you make about assembling, you know, as, assembly of elements as the approach that permaculture takes versus, I don't know, I forget how you phrase it in your, your, uh, your blogs, but the way I would phrase it would be, the emergence of pattern or the emergence of form from a process mm-hmm. from a healthy ecological process mm. an evolutionary design process you know i mean at the essence of at the essence of uh, there's a lot of things that are at the essence here but well let me come back to that point by going on a out a side door and coming in a, a different a different window while I was writing Edible Forest Gardens with Eric Tonsmeyer, I was also studying to be a yoga teacher mm. and involved in Siddha Yoga, which is a, a Shaivite sect of, uh, of yoga. Uh, so Shaivites, the, the main deity is Shiva or Shiva. And there's a whole philosophy around Shaivism that, um, or Shaivism, that one of the basic ideas, and it, I think this might also be a tantric idea too, is this translation that I would use is that the perceiver, the perceived, and the object of perception are one. Mm-hmm. And so when I read that in this one text, 
I looked out the window and chose an object and just looked at it and tried to experience the perceiver, the perceived, and the object of perception are one. And I do that once in a while. And I get these weird glimpses, I would call them, but they're more experiences of, of what that sentence means. And as I've continued doing my design practice all these years, I, I can look at every design I've done and it tells me about who I was when I did that design. Mm, yep, yep. I can look at every design I've, I've worked on and I can tell you, I can see the impact of that in the, in, in the design that resulted from the process. I can tell you about the things that went well and went, didn't go well in that process. Mm -hmm. So essentially what I'm saying is the designer, the design, and the process of design are one. Mm -hmm. They cannot be separated. So if we want to have an ecological design outcome, we have to have an ecological design process. And I've understood that from the beginning. But if we're going to follow that to its conclusion, then the designer must also be an ecologist. And the design process has to lead the designer into that state of being an ecologist. What does ecology mean? Study of the household, literally from Greek. If the design process isn't leading you to study the context and all the actors in a system, then you're not being an ecologist. So goals articulation is essentially a deep analysis and assessment of the people involved. Site analysis and assessment is essentially goals articulation for the land. And my job as a designer is to draw out the client and draw out the site and see how those two streams meet and watch the patterns that result from that meeting. My job basically is to get myself out of the way and be a channel for these people and this landscape to reveal themselves to each other and to me and for the design to emerge from that that process. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that design, ecological design, is an educative process because the word education literally means to draw out. I'm educating my client, I'm educating the site, I'm educating myself. And the design emerges from those relationships and patterns that we are revealed in that process. That's how I see it. Oh, that's, that's so beautiful. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if I want to admit that I just had a, a bit of a, a, a tear come and why, you know, that was really beautiful. So beautiful. And, you Thank know, you. and, and for me, cause this, that, that resonates so kind of purely with really the crux of what Christopher Alexander is talking about in the nature of order. So, you know, just like you'd already, you'd already got there before you found permaculture to, to the core insights of permaculture. You, you're, you're navigating your own way through, through that territory. And, and for me to think, wow, you know what, for this, this beautiful, you know, essentially beautiful, I think permaculture has beautiful foundations and in essence comes from an incredible place for it to move into the space you just described and what becomes possible and that frame on what it means to be ecologist of deep presence, deep presence to what's going on here. Yes. 
and it, like even in, in my journey that that was something i realized early on is that what i was learning from the permaculture literature and courses and so on was very light on figuring out what what the people want, want christopher alexander says somewhere it's extremely hard to help people tell you what they want and and like you said it, it's it's the it's the same process you know of deeply immersing in these people and what's really going on and, and it's, it's you're doing the same thing that you're doing in the landscape what are the what's the undercurrent what's the deep structure of the situation here and then yeah how do you how do you tease that out draw it out listen deeply enough and get your ego out of the way enough to let these things reveal themselves knowing that that's where the magic is that's where the beauty is and that's where the that's the where the real design solution is yeah and just all that nonsense. I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the great permaculture designer and I'm going to walk into the site and effectively give you, pay you lip service, but then just grab, reach into the grab bag and just start littering stuff around, you know? <laughs> Which is how I started. And, but, you know, th- that it continues today. And these permaculture... Yeah, so me too, bro. I started there too. Don't, yeah, don't, these, don't put me on a pedestal. I did that shit too. So. <laughs> These, you know, self, Sometimes self, I still do. I, I, to be honest. Yeah, you know? it's always there. It's always there, and it's hard. It's hard work. The discipline to, to be true to the space when it's so easy to walk in there and play that game, and the clients love. You know, you get certain amount of feedback. You get paid and so on, but you people, haven't been true to your. You haven't been true to what it means to be inside a healthy design want process. To put you on a pedestal. People yeah. want to put me on a pedestal. People, mm. they're paying you. They want you to be the expert, and a lot of people are giving away their power. Mm. They don't want to be responsible. They mm. want someone else to make the decisions for them. Yeah, yeah. And that is fucked up. Yeah. That is part of the problem. Mm. Yeah. And then when we buy into that hero stance, we become part of that same problem. Totally. You know, yeah. heroic measures suck. Mm. Mm. They suck. Mm. The more famous you become, the more people put you on that pedestal, the harder it is to resist falling into that pit. Yeah, yeah. It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> it's a total pain in the ass. I guess it's, it's kind of the paradox. On the one hand, you're trying to share this stuff. On, the, on yeah. the other hand, you're doing it in a way that's making you famous, which makes it harder to stay true to the stuff you're trying to share because people want you to be the hero that comes and you know, imposes your expertise on them. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I do my best to make a fool of myself early in my courses. So. Yeah. But you know, you, you know, you, at the same time, you're obviously having a, a degree of success there that people are, are getting this. I think people can read your book, which is incredible and it's so beautifully articulated. Those chapters on design process have been a real, in a way, those chapters have been a, a mentor for me. And it was only yeah. after that I was lucky enough to tag along with you on a, on a design job and spend time yeah. um, together. But I don't think people who've only seen your book realize that to do a, a workshop with you or to spend time with you in person is a totally different thing where you're able to much more. I, I think there's the clues are there. The hints are there. You talk about the fingers pointing in the moon at, at the book and the distinction between here's, here's, here's some ideas about design process, but they're training wheels. When, when you yeah. step into the real experience of, of authentic design process, throw them away, you know? Start jamming. But, yeah, um, well, you-, you know, I mean, like, you know, when you're learning to play piano, you got to play chopsticks for a while. Yeah, yeah. You got to do scales. And mm. when people feel a lack of connection to, to themselves, when I feel lack of connection to myself, then I need the training wheels. I need to fall back on something. But then we can, be, we can attach to that and get rigid about it mm. and say, well, this is the only one right way. And I'm like, sorry, that's just not the case. Mm. You know, I mean, 
Yeah, do not confuse the fingers pointing at the moon for, 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 the, for the moon itself. The design process is innate to human beings. Mm. We all have it in us. I believe that there's a lot of variation among human beings as to how we do a design process, but I also believe that there are archetypal elements to that design process and that we can hone our skill at each of those different archetypal elements or parts of the design process. Mm-hmm. And when we, when we do our, do our scales and, and, and do our, our classical piano training with what you or I or whoever considers archetypal elements, then we get to play jazz and improvise, mm-hmm. which is how it really works, you know, and the more connected we are to ourselves, the more connected body and mind are, the more we live the interconnection between them, live the reality of their oneness, mm-hmm. then the more free we are and the less we need those training wheels. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that ecological design process is a tool for liberation of the inner self so that we can achieve that reality within ourselves. And then we are better designers because we're present in the moment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Rather than reacting to cultural inhibitions, cultural patterning, the expectations of clients or, you know, just reactive thing. When we see a certain thing in the landscape, oh, that's, you know, we, we have a, a steep slope, let's build, a, let's build a, a, a terrace. Or, you know, we have infiltration issues, let's build a swale. Or whatever the knee-jerk thing is, there's plenty of them. Yeah, and yeah. it's about becoming more and more free or realizing our freedom. And it starts sounding very trippy, hippie, whatever, but it's actually extremely practical. Mm-hmm. Um, so. yeah 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 that's that's lovely yeah i'm I, i'm conscious that i think part of what i'm doing is drumming up a bit of uh hopefully people listening to these things and reading some wise stuff they're, they're more likely to go and read a bit of christopher alexander and i know that's going to be part of what happens is people begin to hey this is a bit trippy hippie for exactly the same reasons you're talking about yeah um, you know that's in there but i i hope they can see through that and realize that that underneath it all in it and through it and caught up with it inseparably yeah. is this ridiculous, you know, insanely practical process oh, that, that just totally. works, you know, and it's, it's great to hear you talking because I think I'm coming to a deeper understanding of what's going on inside your, your phrase, ecological design process, you know, because earlier you talked about part of it is that the word ecology means that if an ecological design process involves deep, paying deep attention, being deeply present to the household to the people to the place mm-hmm. but then there's there's other flavors of the word you know for it to be ecological as in like an ecological system it has to be adaptive you know it, it, right. has, it has to be alive yeah. you know so you're exactly. really talking about a process that's yeah. alive yeah exactly and if the designer is not alive the designer is present if the designer is living in past or living in rigidity or living in mm-hmm. a belief structure that's not adaptive in the present then what kind of design will result Exactly. Yeah. Right. And yep. so, so it is about adaptation. It's mm. about conscious evolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, the phrase I usually use actually is a conscious ecological design process. Mm, right. Yeah. 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 I, an epi- epiphany for me along the way was realizing what you've, you've said several times already as of the process, so of the outcome. So, you know, yeah. if, if the process of creating something is a rigid process, 
guess what? The outcome's going to be rigid. If the process is ugly, guess what? The outcome's going to be ugly. And if the process is not alive, guess what? The outcome, it can't, it can't be alive. It doesn't work that way. Right. You know, we can't get to adapted living, you know, organic evolving systems unless the process has, has those characteristics, which isn't self-evident in our culture for some reason. And, yeah. and to realize that, cause, and then the question becomes, well, what does it mean? I, be, I better make sure that my process is all these things. Well, what does that mean? And of course, as soon as you ask that, you're, you're entering fresh territory. This well, is not a- and, and what does that mean in terms of the client-designer relationship? Yeah, totally. You know, like if I'm the designer and they're the client and they are co- passive consumers, is that going to be alive? Mm. No, I, they have to be the designers because they're going to be living with it. They're exactly. the designers. Yeah, yep. And and how do we how do we bridge that? I mean, ultimately, you know, I talked with the word education earlier. Education literally meaning to draw out. Well, the design process is an educative process. Well, it has to be an educational process. I have to be empowering my clients. To be their own designers. Yes. Yep. One way or the other, no matter if I'm facilitating their process, which is which what I prefer actually, or if they're hiring me to do the design for them, I still need to be finding a way to empower them in the process mm-hmm. so that they can make decisions. They're the decision makers, they're designers, they are the ones who will be living through that system and having to continually adapt and evolve that system to themselves as they grow and change and age and mm. have kids or whatever the hell happened, break a leg, get cancer, you know, whatever it is, decide to divorce, decide that, you know, whatever, you know, mm. I mean, there's so many things that change and for that process, for that landscape, for that culture of those people in that place with that mm. technology to be alive, it has to be constantly adapting and changing. Mm-hmm. And they have to be alive to that, not dependent on me. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's been a big part of where I've been at in the last few years. And then the excitement of that, that it's not about the landscape or the building. That's going to be an outcome of the process if we get it right. But it's the game here is, like you were saying at the very beginning, it's about really about culture design, designing your culture or supporting the evolution of your culture in terms of the way you live and the way that you go about creating the space around you and, right. and bringing that back to life in a, in a way where... I, I like to think of it these days where there's never any handover required in, in the sense that, oh, you know, I've gone off and I've done some work and I'm going to bring it back to you that the ultimate experience for me is that the clients are totally involved in every step. And if anything, oftentimes they have to catch me up, you know, because they've, they've right. gone off and done some homework or mapped the site or whatever it is. Yeah. And I, I wasn't even there. They just fill me in and, and, and it's more about training, facilitating the, that process. And, and then which, I get this exciting kind of yeah vision for you know if, if that was to become more of the focus in, in permaculture rather than going and buying into that split between the design and the client and everything else and ultimately just often leaving people with a picture on a piece of paper um, <laughs> which really you know doesn't necessarily make any impact at all on the way the ability to which they can take control and be in a be in the driving seat of their own lives again and creating the which you you said also in the podcast that's a huge part of the problem you yeah. know like getting close to the crux of what's going on, which Alexander honed in on as well. He laughed about the extent to which we outsource our lives, outsource the life in us to the point where we pay someone yes. to come and tell us what wallpaper to put on our um, walls. And unless permaculture is actively, don't want to say combating, but you know, actively countering that trend, you know what I mean? That, that, yeah. that something's, yeah. something's really wrong. And, and permaculture stops. It, it's not realizing it's radical promise. 
One thing I really wanted to come back to was you were talking about body, mind and, and feeling and so on, because one thing I've picked up in general in terms of the center of gravity of permaculture, and I'd be interested to see what you think about this, is that permaculture is afraid of feelings. No, 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 we're not. <laughs> Yes, you are. You know, there's, it's it's not stated, and of course, there's a there are a lot of uh, you know undercurrents and movements that that are really strongly sure. honouring feelings. But I, I would say, in my my perspective, from, uh, you know, my limited viewpoint on the permaculture as a global movement, there's this yeah unconsciously institutionalised kind of fear or or rigidity about feelings are dangerous. You know, intuition is dangerous. They could sidetrack the the process and the, you know there's certainly there can be truth to that but to, yeah, to throw the baby out with the bathwater certainly can sidetrack the process too so you yeah know. yeah that's right <laughs> but, but for it to be this become this yeah this hyper rational this is about logic this is about science and we're not going to maybe we bring a bit of feeling at the end or something but what, what you're what you're saying is that you've realized that it doesn't work that way unless deep feeling and i loved working with you on a design project here in australia one time yeah, yeah. You were so present to your, you were listening to your gut, you know, and that was as important. And and it's this is not to say that you neglect the powers of, you know, the rational mind and logic. That was still there. Oh but no, then, I'm, but, I'm, I'm I'm looking I'm looking for the integration of all that. You that's know? right. Yeah, going going to a deeper place where we're yeah, both we're both are honoured and present, and it's not an and either it, or it, game it, or flip flopping. Don't frame it as a as a as a two things either. Mm-hmm. You know, rationality and feelings. The way you're framing that mm-hmm. that question in that sentence is even assuming that rationality is a monolith and emotions are a monolith. Neither of them are monoliths. Mm-hmm. They're co- both complex, interconnected systems. Yeah. In fact, I was reading a neuroscience uh, book a while back, uh-huh. and there's this, guy, there's this guy who had a car accident. And a piece of steel went through his head, in and out, went through his brain, once in one side and out the other side of his head in this accident. He, amazingly, he, was, he seemed okay. Mm-hmm. But they did notice that the, the, the metal that went through his head had severed the connection between his neocortex, the supposedly rational side of the brain, mm-hmm. and his limbic system, supposedly emotional part of the brain. Okay. But he seemed otherwise okay. So he goes from the home from the hospital and it becomes clear that he can't make a single decision. He can't even decide what color pen to sign a document with and what what shoes to put on in the morning. And and then what neuroscience has shown is that I think it was 80 to 90% of rational decision-making, the information that goes into rational decision-making is actually comes from the limbic system. Mm, So rational decisions are still vastly, mostly, emotional decisions yeah 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 when we when we when we cut and there's a a book that i highly recommend people try and find it's not in in print anymore and it's called emotional genius and the author's name is carla with a k carla mclaren m i think it's m c l a r a n Mm -hmm. um out of print and the price when i've seen it for sale used has varied from like five bucks to a hundred bucks but so just watch the price, see if you can get it cheaper. But in this book, she argues that emotions are a source of genius. This is not about emotional intelligence. She's saying emotions are a source of genius. And the more we cut off our emotions, the less access to genius that we have. 
and she she it's a it's a brilliant book it's very intense the opening part about her own life and what she experienced as a child and stuff like that but it's very worthwhile reading and she's got a newer book out now that i in some ways in some ways is clearer but i don't like it as much um and i forget the name of that one even but in any case emotional genius and when i read that book and i've been thinking about this and i've been you know working with students as a I, I do permaculture teacher trainings and stuff and I do these exercises with my incoming, you know, when I do my interview, pre-course interview for the teacher training, you do this whole exercise around fear. And what I tell people is that the limbic system is a highly evolved information processing system. It's been around for millions and millions and millions of years. All the mammals have it. Most of the vertebrates have it. And basically what it comes down to is it's a way of our body taking in information about ourselves in relation to our context, social or otherwise, and putting that in a form where it, we're trying, it's trying to send messages to us. When we feel the emotions in our body, we actually receive the message and then once we have felt the once the message has been received, the emotion goes away. It's done its job. Right. Message received, right? Yep. But if we repress the emotion and don't receive the message, then it keeps trying to send us the message. Okay. And this is where we get off with our culture because our culture and the enlightenment was all about rationality and trying to take the emotions out of things and it's all based on reason and there's value to that. It's actually a logical developmental stage in the development of children mm -hmm. into adults, but you get to a certain point and you have to integrate rationality and emotions and not let the emotions run roughshod over everything and react out mm -hmm. from your emotions, but be able to have your emotions without letting them control you, without mm -hmm. identifying with your emotions, right? It's all about identification, the process of identification. If you identify with your anger, then you're going to be an angry person. If you identify with your, mm -hmm. the, your sadness or your, your grief, you're going to be, you know, then. But if you, if you disidentify, you know, if you, if you let the, that information wash through you and you receive the messages, then you're open to more messages. And it means you're in the moment. You're not pushing away the experience of two minutes ago or five minutes ago or 10 years ago. You're present. And, uh, you know, it, it's a whole different experience to be in that space and not be run by the emotions, but to have them as a tool, as a value, valuable aspect of one's humanity along with the rational brain. Yeah, a trusted ally and this enormous source of, of critical it's, information. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. When you and I were walking around that site together, mm. you know, I, I remember hanging out with you that day and this is Horseshoe Valley and the, the underground water systems and the, the, just the feeling of the space was telling us so much yeah. that yeah. led to a really beautiful design. But we were combining that with our observations and interpretation. The interpretation, you know, in site analysis, you know, we talked a little bit, a little bit about goals articulation. And I, and I didn't really talk about the lessons that goals articulation teaches, but site analysis is, when we, we talk about this 
kind of woo-woo inner landscape spiritual people call it spiritual i don't use the word spiritual but the people yeah. call it spiritual stuff this this inner landscape stuff that the ecological design teaches here's here's a key one all right insight analysis and assessment first of all it's analysis and assessment in that order analysis is literally means to break things down into the component parts assessment means to give weight to to evaluate evaluate to give value to and so so basically when you're making an observation you're saying here's a chunk of information you're, it's an analysis interpretation is what does that observation mean right there's a puddle in the front walk observation what does it mean it means your feet get wet on a rainy day when you're trying to get into the house or leave the house and there's a multiple different design directions that could come out of that observation interpretation and design potential design solutions are a form of interpretation. Yeah. But I try not to jump on the first design idea that comes to mind because it may not be the best. In fact, my experience has been that when I do observation and interpretation, I, I, I use a dot bullet when I'm taking my notes. I use a little, a little dot and I make the observation and then I use an arrow to say, therefore, the what is the observation, the so what is the interpretation. I use the arrow bullet, the interpretation. I say, okay, fill in the low spot, hmm. or move the path, or you know, whatever, mm -hmm. put a pond there. You mm -hmm. know? And what I find is that when I do multiple interpretations for each observation, over the years, I've learned that the first two or three interpretations that come out is cultural baggage. It's the reactionary shit from my suburban upbringing that comes out first it's most easily available and if i keep going and i let myself have a pause where i don't know what other interpretations there might be and i let myself sit in that place of not knowing mm -hmm. then the good stuff starts coming mm -hmm. yeah right and as i've trained myself to do observation and interpretation in this way, literally writing down every single interpretation from a single observation, multiple interpretations, and I get past the, the reactionary stuff, I'm clearing the reactionary shit out and I'm getting to the good stuff faster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And usually when I get to the good stuff, I'm going, ooh, that's a good idea. That's my emotions giving me information about it. that's a great idea, mm -hmm. right? And if I have a, a, a attunement to what my body, mind, my, my emotions are telling me, then it's helping me to detect the best design ideas that are coming yeah, out of that yeah. option. Yeah, I want, I want to ask which of those two, the cultural baggage or the going through that, which of those you think constitutes most of the, the permaculture design that's currently done out there? That can be a, an, an open question. Well, I should... you know, I mean, so to, to answer your question, I, I could give it about three or four different answers, but... First of all, so we have the, the cultural baggage from the various ways that each of us grew up, our reaction, our uh, unconsciously imbibed solutions to problems that we imbibe from being infants who are completely dependent on our caregivers that need to learn every little freaking thing about our caregivers because any little way they behave could be adaptive. If they lived long enough, to bring us into the world, then every little behavior they have is adaptive. And we are designed to just imbibe that like sponges mm. as children unconsciously and just take it all in within the first few years so we can increase our chance of survival, right? Yeah. So yeah. that becomes this patterned unconscious behavior. 
And then we get to a point where we, our brains develop to a certain point and we start rejecting that and trying something new because this old hat. And that's completely adaptive also because our parents grew up at a different time than us and we need to be able to adapt to new circumstances. So this is all about human development of the brain and the body you know, as we're growing as, as individuals. Mm. But that goes on too. You, you get a, a, new, a new thing about permaculture and you're all excited about a new way of being and it becomes another layer of cultural imbibition. Mm-hmm. You know, we imbibe that, and that becomes a new layer of reactionary mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in the 80s, after I took my permaculture course, for a long time, if you didn't have a, an herb spiral, it wasn't permaculture. And I'm like, oh, please, give me a break. Yeah. And now it's swales. You know, if you don't have a swale, it's not permaculture. If you're not doing earthworks, it's not permaculture. Give me a fucking break. <laughs> Yeah. Hello, wake up. Yeah. You know, the swale or the herb spiral or the chicken heated greenhouse are ideas that embody principles. Mm. Let's get to the principles and apply them appropriately within a context. Screw the pattern. Mm-hmm. You know, the pattern is appropriate in certain contexts. You know, pattern languages. Patterns in the context of pattern language are like principles and they should be able to be applied differently in every context and still be true to the pattern or the principle. Totally. Right? Yeah. That's the beauty of them. Yeah. It's not about cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. And you can have the same principles that are embodied in a, an herb spiral or a swale and have it not look like an herb spiral or a swale at all, but still have the same functions in the landscape in a way that's more appropriate to a context. But we have this cultural thing that, you know, and I see it as these waves of fads, right? So people get, oh, a pattern, you know, the pattern languages are kind of a fad now too, right? And yeah. people, the, the idea of a pattern language kind of rapidly propagates across the cultural field mm-hmm. and it shifts the cultural field at a surface level and it helps transform it in a longer impression. But multiple fads keep moving across and that's a slow process of culture change. Mm-hmm. It's a fine process of culture change is how things change in many ways, right? but it's also shallow. The key thing is let's go deep and let's, if we really want to change the culture, we got to go to the deep undergirding understructure of the culture. And if we go deep into ecological design process, it can teach us to do that. It can do that with us, do that through us. The design process is our primary teacher. It lives in each one of us. We're not dependent on anyone to learn this shit. If we, once we tune in to our own, native design process and get good at it and make it explicit and effective and efficient and shareable, Mm -hmm. then we can be transformative at multiple levels that every action can have many, many consequences, kind of like the worm in the Petri dish. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. As you're talking, I was giving this image of like, a sound design process as being like a little, I don't know, a submarine or something, you know, that, let, that lets you go down deep where the point really, it's not about oh, this particular design job or whatever, it's about that just providing a platform or a medium through which we can do the work of reinventing culture, culture, of, of culture. Yeah. And of course, you, we, at any at any given point, you can only go so deep and there's always, there's, there's going to be yeah. endless steps to yeah. it because we're operating on these 
many thousands of years, layers yeah. and layers and layers and yeah. layers and layers of assumptions. Yeah. And we can only, you know, we can only go so deep from where we are, but in, unless. But how deep you can go from where you are depends mm-hmm. on who you are. Yes. Yep. And how skillful the designer is, right? How big your, how big your oxygen tank is. Well, you know, and, and, uh, and how quick you can swim down there, you know? Mm, yeah. I mean, yep. if, if one understands how interconnected systems work mm. and how the inner landscape of a, of a person affects the landscape, then you can ask the questions or make the pointed comments that unlock multiple things at once. And the transformation can happen pretty fast, actually. Mm. And mm. when you talk about the effects that, my coming to Australia twice and teaching has had mm. it's because I've been practicing this long enough that, and that I've applied and I've, I've reframed what teaching is mm. in such a way that I can take what I've learned from design and apply it in that educational context that I design that my role, a, t- a teacher is not a person. A teacher is an event. Yes. And my, yes. my role is to design events from which people learn. And that allows me to apply all this shit that I've learned and practiced for 30 years mm-hmm. in that context in a really fascinating way that is always teaching me something. When every time I do it, even when I use the same course outline, every class is different, man. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a trip, the stuff that I learn. I'm learning different things than the people in my class are learning, but I'm also telling them what I'm learning from, that, from the experience. So they're getting what I'm t- getting too. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's transformative on multiple levels for all of us. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a trip because that is culture design. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Love it. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I've, I've realized that over the time as well. It's like, cause, cause initially I was like, Oh, I just want to go deeper into permaculture design and be able to design better landscapes. And then you go deep enough and you're like, hang on a second. This shit is universal. It doesn't matter what we're creating a course, a, a life, a, you know what a, a lens it, it's the same process you know the same it's it's that general which can freak you out at first because it's, like, it's like holy shit this is this suddenly this is well like we we're sort of saying at the beginning so rather than like this is just me getting a bit better at my my chosen professional you know specific area it's like oh this is about me getting better at being alive <laughs> being, being a, a functional human being that can create you know, absolutely. Can, can bring forth life in the, in, in the world. Absolutely. Whatever. The question is, what are we designing? And most people, most people's vision of what we're designing is extremely limited, like you're saying. Mm. And actually what we're designing is ourselves. And what we're designing is culture. No matter what we're doing, no matter mm. what we're designing, that's what we're doing. Yeah. And, and basically what it comes down to that I've learned from my own painful experience and uh-huh experience of going through divorce and, you know, being sexually abused as a young person and, 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 and my, my addiction issues Uh is that it all comes down to healing trauma because when we, when we are traumatized and we don't heal from the trauma, Mm -hmm. we fragment internally Mm -hmm. and that is self-separation. And the problem with Western culture is that we believe we're separate. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that belief in separation, we, we live as if we're separate and we cause we, de- we, we, we destroy the interconnections and that is causing the damage and that's causing emotional damage and, mm-hmm. and you can't design if you're not connected to your emotions as we were just talking about. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, doing this work, we are healing the whole kit and caboodle. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. The whole yep. freaking thing, it's yep. all tied together. And once you begin to realize that me doing my ecological design work with my clients is part of me healing my trauma and them theirs, mm-hmm. and then healing the trauma in the landscape, then, man, it's a blast. Yeah, yeah. It's freaking fun. <laughs> it's a trip. It's, 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 a, it's a wild ride, and it gets crazy, but, man – you just go through the sh- go through the rapids, mm-hmm. and you know, or or to use a different analogy, you're going on the you're on the you're on the uh, I want to say Ferris wheel. You know the what do you call the the, the roller coaster? Yeah, you're on the roller coaster with your arms in the air, just going woo. You know? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And you're freaking out about what the hell am I doing on this thing? Yep, but you yep. make it through, and everyone gets good stuff out of it, even if mm-hmm. the shit hits the fan. Actually, I'm looking at my clock, and I should probably okay. check in. Okay. Partners. All right. We'll wrap it up. We'll wrap it up. Yeah. Of course, there's a few topics we haven't really got onto at all. Oh man, right there's to... a lot we haven't touched on. Yeah, but we've gotten through maybe maybe a third of what's on these two pages. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't. Even, I wasn't even looking at your list. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So thanks. Thank you. Uh, let's, Thank let's talk by email about uh, next yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. Talk soon. All right. Take care, okay. man. Catch you. Thank you. Adios. Yep. As I said earlier, this is feeling for both Dave and I like the first instalment in an ongoing conversation, so stay tuned for more. I feel like I'm still kind of digesting it all, so I won't attempt any summary here, but if you have any comments, questions, feedback about anything that's been discussed, please do send them through, either as a comment on the episode release page or the contact form, both of which you can find at makingpermaculturestronger.net. You can uh, learn more about Dave's work at ediblefortgardens.com. Big thanks for listening. I hope this has been helpful. Uh, Thanks for any work you're doing out there in service of a stronger permaculture, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Adios. Adios.